the kinds of stories that we need to shift are stories about our relationship with the natural world um yes climate change but you know that's that's one part of how we think about our place on this planet so ultimately that's that's the story it's about our place on this planet and our role the narratives we have are the soil from which the regulation the technology the policy we have grow and so we need to be working at, at that level to affect change you're listening to the spaceship earth podcast with me dan burgess Welcome to the show. This is uh, episode 10. This episode is uh, a conversation with a remarkable woman called Ella Saltmarsh. Um, Ella is a writer, a strategist, a campaigner, a systems thinker, instigator and co-creator of a whole range of different projects that are exploring really like, properly interesting stuff. Um, uh, from rethinking advertising with her work with the comms lab um, uh, her point people uh, project that she's uh, she's a part of which is um, a, a bunch of um, pretty awesome women that are exploring systems change from multidisciplinary perspectives um, a project called she votes to encourage more women to vote uh, the long time project which we talk about in in this which is super interesting about is it possible and how would we sort of shift culturally our view of time and this idea of short terminism and um, you know the ability for humans right now to think in such short term cycles and how might we shift to a much longer time cycle more on that uh, a project called represent age looking at kind of um, you know the points of view from from elders and elder women it goes on she would describe herself as as a polymath and we talk about that a lot in this conversation um, the idea of uh, being able to work across um, all kinds of different sectors different issues um, different areas of uh, kind of expertise and knowledge different disciplines and what is that like um, you know being more able to be kind of more generalist more plural or how do you how do you develop those kind of skills and maybe also how now in the world we're living in right now how important the ability um, for kind of pluralists for people that can actually work across uh, multiple dimensions and the importance of that and how it's not naturally how kind of the world has evolved um, a world of kind of specialization and, and uh, we shed light on a couple of projects um, that are really um, coming to life right now. But she works a lot with narrative, particularly around environmental issues. How do we change stories that we hear in our culture so that we can respond um, appropriately against some of the things that are coming our way and what's the sort of power of kind of story and narrative in that we talk quite a lot about systems you know you hear that a lot, a lot. systems change systems thinking what, what what is that all about eh? what is it all about so we uh, we explore a little bit of uh, some of the systems change work that, that Ella's involved in I'll uh, put a bunch of links into the show notes um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to cut into the conversation. I hope you enjoy this one. This is episode 10 of the Spaceship Earth with Ella Saltmarsh. Hello. 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 Hello
Ella. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Spaceship Earth. Thanks for um, finding the time to do this. Um, I always wanted to start. I, always, I sort of, you've got a lot of things going on. And when I, I say, I guess you're on your Instagram, you say story and systems and shaking things up, which is, uh, which I love. <laughs> but um, we're, I guess we'll get into like where things are now. But could you give like us a little bit of your story, like your, of how you've got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, Dan. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, so yes, um, how did I get to where I am now? Um, well, so I grew up on a remote farm um, in Cornwall and um, didn't have a TV. Uh, and so kind That's of spent right. my days like feral uh, with lots of books. Um, you know, I was really into stories from a very young age. Um, and also had parents who were quite politically active. So I was mm. being kind of, you know, dragged to Greenham Common and, you know, it was kind of taken on protests from a very young age. And so I kind of grew up immersed in this world of like nature, story mm. and activism. Um, and and those are the themes that have kind of animated my life. Mm. Um, and so I was making up stories from a very young age. Um, and, you know, and I started to become an activist. So I remember like, I was really long, like six or something and writing a letter to Maggie Thatcher, completely <laughs> self-initiated. Like my parents had nothing to do with it. And then- What did you, what you, what did you write about? Oh, it was, it was about the Falklands. I was really cross oh, with her about the Falklands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like yeah. five, five. <laughs> I was really, I could barely write. Um, and, um, and and so and then just continued the activism so like i remember when red nose day first started i got my school to do the first red nose day and then for like we had elections at our school and there wasn't a party that i believed in so i formed a new party the new excellent what was the party the new green labor party um won the elections and so you know like i guess just started to be an activist from yeah. a young age but also you know have had a strong fantasy life so have always <laughs> so i've always kind of made things up and so you know as an adult I kept these strands going so I've always written fiction you know now I write drama for um film and tv and theater um but also this kind of passion for um working towards a better world and I guess through much of my 20s um that kind of plurality was actually a real source of pain hmm. because I always felt that I wasn't being a grown up by doing these very different kinds of things. So on the one hand, you know, like I had a career in international development, was working all over the world, increasingly focusing on climate change, um, you know, advising like NGOs and donors. Uh, and then I was also, you know, um, writing short stories and then writing screenplays and and then, you know, getting representation for that side of my work. And, and I think I always felt that I was, um, yeah, that I was somehow being immature and that one day I'd grow up and just do one thing because that's what adults do. Um, and because I've seen that, <clears throat> that you've because I've seen you talk about this before, like um, what leading a plural life, and um, which I find absolutely fascinating as well because I, I mean, different but similar, you know, that I have many things going on that I feel energy for, whatever, and I've often found that at least in the past, really quite difficult to 
to, to even understand it, you know, even to, you know, is that is that a good thing? Is it, you know, almost slight shameful almost at sometimes in my early years? But Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I felt that too, you know, I was always kind of hiding different bits of myself. Mm. And then it was like when we came together to form the Point People, um, which is yeah, an, about that. Yeah, so it's a network of women who we all cross sectors and we work kind of towards systems change. So we formed about eight years ago and suddenly I was amongst all these other people who were really plural and through that I got the kind of courage to do that TEDx talk mm. um, about being plural and to kind of come out of that closet and to stop hiding all the different parts of myself and to really make a case about why we need plurality at this moment in our history um, and so tell us a bit more about that because there'll be folks who'll be interested in, in that because I remember you also talked about something I picked up the idea of ne the narrowing of knowledge you use yeah tell us more about that and why yeah. why is this important now do you think yeah so this idea of specialization really only came along with industrialization like before that we had always understood um wisdom and knowledge to be about the widening of um, experience rather than the narrowing of it. Mm. And then as industrialization came and we had like the specialization of the division of labor that didn't only apply to kind of Henry Ford and his car manufacturing lines, it applied to intellectual labor. And so suddenly we saw the rise of specialization. Um, and you know, and, and as, like it does, it gave us loads of great stuff. Like specialization is really important, but it's, not the we, we it needs to be balanced out um and in some ways like the age of the monomath which was the last century is responsible for a lot of the problems that we face today you know this very kind of singular blinkered way of understanding the world means that we have the challenges we have whether they're about you know climate change or immigration or poverty or inequality um and Actually, when we start to take a more Brexit. plural <laughs> and that when we start to take a more plural approach, it enables us to connect the dots, it enables us to think more system more systemically, it enables us to collaborate much more because plural people like us, we cross different sectors, like we just live in all these different worlds, we speak all these different languages, um, and there is such value now, like we. You know, there is no one silver bullet that is going to solve climate change. There is no one business. There is no one social entrepreneur. Instead, it requires kind of new coalitions and and like knowledge being mobilized in new ways. And so plurality is go is like it, it's really important because of that. But it's also what I've really seen because I've been talking about this now for about about eight years mm. and there's been such a shift so when I started talking about being plural it was to do what I'm doing now making the case for why it's important um n but now when I speak to young people about it they don't have any choice they are gonna have to be plural I mean our economy is changing so fast that in fact we're all gonna have to be plural like who knows what the world of work is gonna look like in 10 or 20 years time we are all gonna have multiple careers so the more we can learn about what I call like the craft of being plural because you know it's a set of skills mm. essentially like the better just because we're going to need it for our survival. So now when I speak to young people, they're like, yeah, I mean, they still feel some shame because there's still a hangover of that. Yeah. But they're like, yeah, we're just having to live like this. It's fascinating, isn't it? What And what is your, you talk about that um, kind of a set of skills or practices or whatever. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Like what, what do you see as the sort of skill set for a, 
kind of plural approach to life yeah so um so I talk about like the ABC of being plural so like the A is for being an autodidact so it's about learning it's about take like it's about constantly learning um and so curiosity is would yeah be there curiosity is really important um and it's and it's kind of taking responsibility for learning. Like mm. when I was younger, I thought again. Like when I grew up, I would know with a capital K, and I w- yeah. and, and I teach because that's what people who know do. Yeah. And then suddenly I was like, oh no! Like I'm, like I should be learning my whole life. Like I've got yeah. a grandma who's a hundred, and like the reason I think she's still alive is that she's been learned. Like she's never stopped learning. Yeah. And so I think so. The A is for yeah, being an autodidact for like for le- for keeping on learning. And then for me, there's the B is for balance, which is about this kind of balance between confidence and humility. Because when you're plural, there's always going to be people who know more than you about a given topic, Mm. like always. And basically, this means you've got to be like a massive nerd. (laughs) Like you just like you like you have to. You you, yeah, because you're because you're diving into all these fields, but. So you have to have that humility and and be nerdy about it. But also you have to have a confidence that although you don't know the most, you've got just as much right to use that knowledge in different contexts and that that is useful. Mm. Um, And, you know, and it's like it's a tricky balance. Yeah, it's so so interesting. It's making me think of, you know, stuff I've been doing over the years with, you know, particularly like conservation scientists and how to engage more people in these kind of science issues. And you're sort of holding these kind of science questions (laughs) And, and, and then exploring a kind of the question of engagement, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just made me think of exact moments where I felt that sort of, you know, almost that kind of heat from the science community that I've been in a space with, you know, you, you, you know, you don't know as much as us about this stuff, you know, <laughs> I'm like trying to sort of honor what that, what I do, you know, their, their, their expertise, but also say, hey, but if we want to, if we want to try and find ways to solve this stuff, we're going to have to sort of open it up to that's that kind of thing isn't right it? absolutely so it's like yeah. not having it's not being kind of beaten into submission yeah. um when you get in those situations um and equally it's about recognizing yeah, yeah t- as you do like when you're working with lots of scientists there's a certain amount of nerding up you're gonna have to yeah. do um but that like your role is really valuable mm. uh and and it can be challenging because we still do live in this world of specialization yeah, right. so so understanding that and then the fight the c isn't really a c but it's seeing like a goat um okay. which is for me is about your peripheral vision that sounds like a t-shirt yeah see like a goat <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Every, everyone can get it for christmas yeah. um uh and that so goats have this amazing peripheral vision like Do they? 320 Even degrees maybe wow so um, i thought of a deer when i think of peripheral vision but yeah. i never thought of a goat remember their, their eyes are on the side of their heads interesting yeah and so so for me there's a part of being plural that's always about um going to the edge of what you know so like having that peripheral vision to see like what's like what's on the boundary of your knowledge who else is asking the same questions you are but from another discipline Mm. and like constantly like pushing at the edges of your knowledge so I mean there's loads more but for me there's some of them that's good wow so that's so so that's so that's so and tell me when tell me like how that sense of you know being plural having this kind of multiple um skill sets box of tools that you're using when did you start to sense that actually now there's there's real value in this way of being because i said you sort of suggested that there was as i felt at times in in my past like having that kind of diversity of of views and ideas and ways of thinking 
what's felt like a bit of a problem at some point but things are changing right so you're now sort of you're seeing this as a, a as a really strong sort of emergent now discipline um can you sort of think about when that change started to happen for you yeah I mean I, so I guess on a personal level it started to happen as I started to be more public about it mm. but then if I'm honest, it's probably just been the last few years when I really see how useful it is to bring together different worlds. Like the work I'm doing now, which like, which I think is valuable work, I couldn't do if I didn't have this weird old background. Yeah. Like if I, if I wasn't crossing the worlds of entertainment, kind of campaigning strategy, like I just couldn't do what I'm doing. Yeah, right. And so I think it's almost like as I age and really seeing how all these different parts, yeah. which felt weird and disparate, suddenly kind of make sense. So, so personally, I think it's been a kind of gradual change that's been accelerated over the last few years. I think in the world, you know, we're seeing, we're now over the last couple of years, again, we're seeing a lot more about this. So, you know, Emma Gannon published her book, which is all about how to have a kind of more plural approach to your career. And just, and there's, there's, there's um, uh, a book called The Neo Generalist that has come out. There's, there's lots yeah. of books coming out in this yeah, space yeah. now. And, and suddenly it's, it's a thing. But it's like, it makes me think, I mean, I've got, you know, oh my I have this sort of flipping a bit, but it isn't. But I guess it's the whole learning piece. And I'm looking at like you know my my I've got two of my kids are sort of teens now or into teens, and I'm pulling my hair out constantly with school and. But you know it's because again this this is this isn't necessarily uh, this type of way of thinking about the world is not being practiced at a young age, or at least it might you know it probably is in some places, but it's not in at least my experience of the here in the UK in the curriculum. That's just not how it's being viewed, and I see the frustrations already in in them of being kind of forced into specialization almost you know what i mean or not able to kind of bring different elements of themselves or their energy into into a learning process and you kind of think again it's, i see this with so much anyway it's like it's almost like we we're institutionalized in all these different ways <laughs> ways of working ways of learning <laughs> ways of thinking about health and then everything starts to break down as you get a bit older and then we sort of we're re-engineering it but you just think how do we get this back how do how do we find ways for this to entrench itself much earlier down down the line, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's a real issue at the mm. moment because like, cause we're not educating the kids for mm. the kind of future they're going to have, right. partly because we don't know what that's going to look like. Right. So I had a crazy stat, which is that two-thirds of children in US elementary schools are going to be going into careers that don't yet exist. Wow. So like, the world of work is changing so fast. Mm. And so for me... I think it's like, how do we equip children with the skills that they are going to need to navigate complexity, yeah. to, you know, to be adaptable, to learn in new ways? Um, because we don't know what subjects they need to yeah, learn right. yet. And so it's a kind of like, it's it's those skills. So actually some of the work I'm doing at the moment is about how do we um, translate this work that's about navigating complexity into content that's accessible to younger people. Hmm. Because, you know, there's all this work going on about how you do that, but it's generally in ivory towers yeah, right. by complexity theorists. And yeah. it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> let's get that out into the world. Yeah. Because actually, you know, people, we're, we're targeting um, people in their kind of early 20s who are facing so much complexity and actually, you know, them having a better understanding of how yeah. to navigate that. Yeah, so sort of everyday complexity, yeah. that's, that's the new normal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so, yeah. Hmm. 
And so, okay, so then the point people, and that's still, tell me a little bit more about that. So I see, I see that, you know, I've seen that bubbling around for, for the last few years, but where are you at with that? And what's the, how does that work? Yeah, so the point people, we all came together because when we first came together, we weren't sure why we were, what we were going to do. Yeah. Like we knew that it was. And you're all women, right? We're all women. Yeah. So a group of women, the criteria was you had to cross sectors in your work. Um, and that was it. And then very quickly, we we're hearing a lot of people talking about systems and systems change in our networks. And we did an initial project with Oxford Uni about like, what, what is that? Yeah. Like, what is the practice of systems change? Like when you are doing systems change, what does your Tuesday morning look like? Yeah. Um, and so we interviewed loads of practitioners and we created, we created some, um, something we called a systems compass. How would you, how would you, like, is there a, some shortcut language? I guess, I guess, again, other people that are listening who are sort of like, maybe not as familiar with that. How would you sort of, how would you describe systems change sort of <laughs> at a high level? But sort of, you know, what, what's it all about really? Yeah, so systems change is really about like, how do you address the root causes of problems? Okay. Um, and it's understanding that um, a problem will sit nested in a system so every all aspects of our lives exist in a, in different systems and so if you want to change something um you have to understand how the system that it's in is working because you can't just change the thing there'll be like there'll be it's like thinking of um an invisible spider's web almost that keeps that thing in place mm. and so if you want to change the thing you're going to have to kind of change the threads in the spider's yeah. web um and so there are loads of different ways of kind of understanding the work of systems change so one is about thinking about changing like things so you can change the things in a system you can change the relationships in yeah. a system and then you can change the goal of a system um mm. and there's lots of different ways yeah, you yeah. can work on all of those levels i th think one of the th things about most systems change initiatives is that they work on many levels and that when you do this work, um, we've developed like a very simple three part model, which is that the first part is about seeing the system. So it's understanding what's there. And there are loads of different tools yeah. you can use to Visualizing see the system. Visualizing it effectively. Yeah. Um, and understanding the relationships and the, you know, the feedback loops that keep things in place. Um, so it's seeing the system is finding the flex. So how do you, like, where are the different doors you can push against mm. to see where change is possible? And then it's making change happen. Mm. Um, and when you're making change happen, again, there are loads of different tools from the worlds of design thinking, campaigning that you can use to make change happen. So that's a kind of simple way of yeah. understanding it. But I think one of the important things to say about systems and why it's, it's a bit of a mouthful, but we talk more now about designing systemically for change mm -hmm. rather than systems change. And that's because basically you can never know the effect of your actions to try and influence a system mm. because systems are not linear things they are unpredictable, they are messy, and they are complex. And so it's not like a tradition, the traditional way we've thought about change, where it's like, if you do this, then that Vote will happen. Vote for this. I've got Brexit again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Classic systems changer. Oh my God, let's not even go there. Um, so, and I think that, that the fact that so much of this work is emergent is, yeah. is very challenging for traditional structures. Yeah. And so at the moment, you know, lots of funders are asking, well, what does this mean? The way, yeah. like if we... What's going to happen when we do this? Yeah. Like, mm. and, and how do we measure 
impact? Yeah. How do we understand if we've been successful? Um, and so, yeah, there's loads yeah, no, of it's interesting fascinating. stuff. There. I heard a re- I'm, uh, an interesting um, uh, sort of thought on syst- thinking of systems recently. It was, I think it was Nora Bateson. It was another podcast, but it was... Um, talking about how and the conversation was all about you know how you know changing institutions these you know how do you change these big systems education politics all this kind of stuff and she was talking about like how she started thinking recently more about um maybe rather than thinking about how we change these institutions but maybe we can start thinking about how we change our relationships to them and uh and then and then there was this sort of riff on um sort of like biology like you know the body which is a classic system right and you have your organs which um, affect, you know, you could see as the sort of institutions. And actually a lot of, you know, when we get ill, a lot of, you know, the, the organs, we have a problem with one of our organs. The focus is always there. But actually, as we're finding out more and more and more, that it's the tissues and muscles and, and cells and everything in between the organs, often where it, where the change can happen. Do you know what I mean? Rather, you know, if you can change stuff in those, in the, in the tissues, you can actually change the health of the organ or whatever it might be. And so I just thought it was really interesting about how thinking about our, our relationships that we have versus the thing. Do you know what I mean? Or what's our, my relationship to education or what is my relationship to politics? And yeah, that? absolutely. And I think that like your relationship mm. to the system is a really important part of mm. the work. Um, and one that like often gets neglected and is so important mm. to understand where you sit mm. within it. And, and I think, yeah, coming back to the analogy of the body, which is a great one. Mm. So um, Donella Meadows, who's a kind of key thinker in this space, she, she uses this um, idea of objects. So like your organs, mm. relationships, the mm. connective tissues, and then the aim, the goal of the whole system. Right. And so she says your, your interventions will have increasing impact when you move up. So, so yes, you can change some things if you change the objects in a system. Um, so it's a bit like a game of tennis. If you change the tennis balls and rackets, um, if you change the kind of players that are, cha- that are playing tennis, you make it more diverse, you're definitely going to change the system. If you want to then have a higher order impact, you start to change the relationship between things in the system. So if it's tennis, you might be like, well, actually, what's the impact of advertisers? Um, how do we change the relationship between how the system is funded? Mm. But if you really want to change a system, you start to change the goal of that system. Um, and I guess that segues into my work on story mm. because story is fundamental for challenging the goals and aim of a system. Right. And that's partly why like, I'm doing so much work on it now yeah. because I think the narratives we live by are literally the soil from which everything else grows. Mm. Um, and it's very important to be working with story and narrative to achieve these massive changes yeah. that, that we need to because i think because it's and we'll get we'll dive into that and say this just made me think again about the um i can never pronounce his name but who wrote the human book has now written the 21 um uh, you've probably gotten um oh, yeah, harari yes yes and so i mean sort of what he's saying in that book is that like you know we're just following a bunch of stories that actually everyone just believes in but actually that can shift right and that's sort of what you're saying is like it's like the story of economic growth or the story of, you know, nature as a resource or the story of, you know, getting an education in this kind of linear way. I mean, they're all just stories that we've been fed or, you know, and we have become so ingrained because that's how life works, right? But it's just, it's like time, right? It's just a story. 
um so tell, tell me about tell me because i i mean you've got i mean i see you know i've sort of been following your your work from afar for some time and i and i love that you've always got so many things going on and i'm and and, and lo looking really interesting and I, there's a few always come out. i mean i'd love to know more about the work you've been doing on environmental stories environmental now can we, can we talk a bit on that yeah absolutely so um yeah, so over the last few years, I've been bringing these like different strands of story and narrative and systems and campaigning together mm. to really understand like how do we use narratives to change systems? Like, what is the role of story in the kind of changes we need to see? Um, and and you know, and story is such a funny thing because I think um, I think it might be just because we read them when we're very little that we think they're these kind of like childlike they're quite benign things um like in the world of social change and policy there's an idea that you do the real work and then you tell some stories about it afterwards and yet like story is the most potent thing like it literally makes and breaks civilizations mm. you know Harari writes in that book the only reason that as humans we were able to live together in cities was because we invented common myths mm. that bound us and legitimated hierarchy there's no way we would have have the world that we have mm. without story mm. and so it is this incredibly potent thing and so part of my work is about um, enabling people to realize like this is an important thing yeah. step one yeah um and i would like and how's that been what's that journey been like well it's interesting because i um so i published this piece on it early in the year and i thought i was writing this like really nerdy niche <laughs> thing that no one would you're geeking out i was yeah and i was <laughs> so i was looking at the role of story and systems change and yeah. um and, and i'd spoken to loads of different practitioners so i was really excited about that and um and it got published in the stanford social innovation review and it's become their most read article of the year amazing you know over fifty thousand people have read right. it I'll and put it, i'll put it in the links the show notes yeah and for me i was like you know, the new york times picked it up and i was like wow like <laughs> what's this about Amazing. and so i think the mo like the moment for narrative has come and i think that's partly because we've seen um we've seen trump we've seen brexit we've seen the power of story have negative effects on our worlds and i think for a lot of people on the left and in the progressive movement there has always been a suspicion of story um there's been an idea about the purity of um fact-based communication and and like facts are really important i'm like I, you know it's sure. very important that we have facts but we also need to engage people emotionally because that's just how we operate like mm. we are a rational messy beings mm. and we don't often act in our own best interests even like the truth doesn't necessarily set us free yeah. we have to work at this kind of story emotional level to achieve the changes that we want so i think partly just the insane world that we're living in right now is suddenly helping a lot of people who traditionally have been a bit suspicious of narrative realize it's important it's interesting just quickly on that though in your fat on the fact thing like i mean again I, I sort of bring this back to what i see seeing with kids a bit is in the way that learning is happening you know we're we've become very obsessed with fact though you know there's not that much room at least again what i can see for subjective thinking different ways of knowing as a child you know in, in the system you know of discovering their own point of view on these facts do you know what i mean it's almost just again it's this sort of like this is this is what we're learning this is important and there's not much opportunity for i think for individuals to sort of find their their own take on you know what it 
what do they think about this? Are they, what, hang on, do you know what I mean? How has this fact been created sort of thing? Yeah, and it's so interesting, Dan, because, mm. you know, for me, like that really resonates with my education. So mm. I was, a, I did science through, um, through school and was going to be a doctor. Mm. Um, and uh, You went to Steiner, didn't you? you no, to, I, I didn't. didn't. I no, I just went to like local comprehensive oh, okay. um, and then to a community college. And, um, and so, yeah, but I was going to do medicine. Yeah. And, but the way that science was taught just completely eliminated me like I, I there was no room for me to have uh, any self-expression or opinion yeah. um and I think as a young you know as a 17 year old I just suddenly I just suddenly was like I can't I, I can't do this mm. um and so changed what I did mm. at university um and looking back I feel it's sad because I think if science had been taught in a different way I could have kept going with it um, if, you know, if there was more space, if there was more creativity with how we engage with science, I think, you know, it would enable more creative minds to mm. move into mm. it. Interesting. Sorry, I, I interrupted your flow of... Uh story of where we were going oh yeah so um <laughs> so narrative so you've done the, the Sanford review article yeah and so um and so off the back of that so in the article I really talk about like three different ways I see story working mm -hmm. um so I talk about story as light so that's the illuminating power of story to like highlight the cracks in a system um to highlight what the future could look like um and to highlight where change is already happening. Mm -hmm. So to really like put, shine a light on the edges, on the disruptors. On the possibilities. Yeah, and yeah. then create an overarching narrative. So that story is light. Mm -hmm. The story is glue, which is all about the cohering power of story. So the role of story in um, building movements, um, in enabling people to come together across difference. Uh, and then finally, which is the bit that's most relevant to what we're talking about, their story is web. And so that's really about like the nest of narratives that we live in, like the personal narratives, the cultural narratives, and the mythic narratives. Mm. And those narratives really determine our future. They, they lock us in to certain futures. Mm. Um, and there's a saying, you know, that story is to human like water is to fish. Mm. So it's the thing that is all around us, but it is invisible to us. Yeah. And so... That this work around how do we start to change the narratives that we live by so they take us to a better kind of future involves partly being able to see those narratives. So shining like a mirror, having a mirror so we understand the narratives that we're living by. Mm. And then it's about how do we reauthor, how do we create new narratives? And then how do we ensure those narratives are pollinated across society? And so so that's the, on an abstract level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's the work that I'm doing yeah, yeah, right. now. And so, yeah. And so how's that? How's that going to play out? So, say with the like some of the environmental uh, initiatives you're you're involved in. Was, how's that going to start? So, I'll give an example. So, for me, when I'm listening, to that, I'm thinking I'm going back to the I'm going back to the kind of the plastic pollution crisis right now, right? So that to me feels like uh, having seen that, you know, you see it coming, you've seen it coming for a long time, but now it's so visceral and visible there's all this work that's been going on on the ground to kind of create this kind of uh, awareness and then bang it, it, you know, David Attenborough, blue planet, January this year, it hits the mass and through this gateway of plastic pollution over the last 12 months. And obviously there's been people who've been working at this for years, but you know, it's cutting through to mass engagement. Now the story of consumption is starting to come through this plastic pollution crisis in a way I've never seen in the years that I've been working as you have on this stuff, 
there's this this has been the most you know it's accelerating discussions uh, questioning inquiry i guess from all kinds of people in our culture and society that maybe climate change and all this other stuff has never been able to do so is that you know is this an example i guess of a story uh, of a shift in story or is there and and, and you know what comes next because my sense is that 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 is offering us a gateway into some of these more of these things that we these bigger issues i guess that we're confronted with and what are those stories and i love this idea you're talking about about you know how do we how do we shine that light because you could say i guess plastic this kind of sort of detrius of plastic everywhere is is the sh the mirror back to humanity right because we're basically saying we can't hide this stuff there is no way <laughs> you know what i mean we've reached this tipping point and so it's acting as a as a mirror i guess well it feels like it's me anyway at least how i see it and and i wonder yeah i wonder what how that might play out or what's coming next or what are the other stories that we need what are the other things we need to put a mirror up to quickly <laughs> on sorry there's quite a lot in that but i just it's interesting as a for me that 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 has been an example this year i guess of a feels like a story change that's going on yeah, and I think it's a really great example of the power and importance of working with culture. Mm. So, um, so yeah, the plastics is a great example. So actually, what all? Because there's been some such great and creative work to highlight the plastics mm. crisis. And so, coming back to my story as light analogy, that's been shining a light. Yes. So really showing in very visceral ways. You know, some of those Facebook videos. Yeah. yeah. With the with wildlife caught up in plastic you know very visceral stories that, that are engaging people emotionally yeah. um so you know it's changing the way people feel and then you know and attenborough doing the same really um and then you know people like you dan coming in with new stories mm. because you know there are people who are working behind the scenes to really think about like how do we tell a different story mm. about the oceans so you know gulbenki and you know mm. commissioned all this framing work to understand the existing narratives that are there mm. and then to create new ones and then you know people like you are a really important part of doing that mm. um and so i think it's but but like this work has a methodology you yeah. know like there 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 is a process that you use to like understand the narratives that are already there yeah. and then to consciously craft new ones but then unless you get those narratives out into the yeah, world right. with people like david attenborough yeah. there is no point yeah, in doing yeah. this work and so i think especially the environmental movement for a long time has been really missing a trick on when it comes to leveraging the power of popular culture yeah um, and so that is what a lot of the work that I'm doing now is about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're seeing other issues doing that really well. So at the moment, I am so inspired by the work that Joseph Roundtree are doing around poverty. Mm. So the Joseph Roundtree Foundation are doing this big project, which is about how do we change the way that the British public understands poverty? You know, we've really we've understood it as uh, recently as being poor people are responsible for their poverty. Yeah. It's a personal choice. It's a very Victorian attitude yeah. we have towards poverty. Scroungers. Right, exactly. Yeah. Benefit Street. Yeah. Um, and so as, you know, as a foundation that um, funds responses to poverty they were like well we need to change mm. the we need to change the public discourse on this so they firstly did the kind of nerdy work they commissioned a load of framing analysis to understand how the british public was thinking about poverty they then did more work to kind of create new narratives and you know they they created new metaphors like um they talk about poverty as a trap 
or as um, something you get sucked into. So to show that how systems mm. lock people into poverty. Mm. Um, and just by creating simple metaphors like trapped or sucked in, it starts to make a real difference. But then they realize that this work wasn't going to be useful unless it got out into the world. And so they're doing all kinds of work from, um, they're doing some work with On Road Media, which is about bringing together the people who make entertainment programs, commissioners at broadcasters, with people with lived experience of poverty to change the way that poverty is communicated right. through the through soaps, media, through right. popular programming. They, you know, their documentary um, that they funded, uh, which is amazing, um, called Northern Soul, which is still on the iPlayer, um, you know, that was shown, I think, a couple of weeks ago on BBC and it's already been used in the House of Commons right. um, wow. as an example of in-work poverty. Like, they, like, at the moment, their messaging, especially this week, is all over um, news media and they're, you know, they are using this different language. And so for me, like, they are showing how it can be done. Hmm. You know, it's very thoughtful, it's very creative, it's understanding the power of popular culture. So I think at the moment, some of my work is about bringing people like that together with funders and CSOs, um, you know, NGOs in the environment movement to understand how can we work in this way more? How do you fund this work? So yeah, I've been teaming up with um, the Environmental Funders Network to like support the sector in, yeah. in working in this more narrative-driven way, um, simply because like, it's as I keep saying it's like the soil from which everything else grows yeah. like the narratives we have are the soil from which the regulation the technology the policy we have grow yeah and so we need to be working at, at that level to affect change and where does that where does so where can you give me a sense of where I mean more specifics of the sort of stories that you'd be looking to shift or I mean and then does this connect to your your um long time project is that because that's uh, yeah sorry just that we um yeah absolutely so i mean the kinds of stories that we need to shift are stories about our relationship with the natural world um yes climate change but you know that's that's one part of how we think about our place on this planet mm. so ultimately that's that's the story. It's about our place on this planet and our mm. role on this planet. Um, and within that, there are many different stories, whether that's about, um, yeah, whether that's about consumerism, um, whether that's about um, you know, migration, there are just, there are so many different issues. Yeah. And so for me, coming back to this idea of like personal, cultural and mythic narratives, um, so the work I've been doing with funders and we've just been discussing is all about the cultural narratives. But I've become increasingly interested in like what are the mythic narratives? Like what are the deeper stories that are animating our societies at the moment? And and what does it look like to work in that space? Hmm. And so it was really through writing that article that I became interested in that. And... And I guess I am a bit suspicious of people who uh, talk about creating new myths because I think there's quite a lot of hubris in that. Like, who am, <laughs> who, who are we? Who am I to yeah. like, create a myth? Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's really how myths work. I don't think they're authored by one person. Yeah, right. Um, they, you know, they, they emerge. Yeah. And maybe they are captured. Um, but I, I just am a bit suspicious of, of, of this work that's about individuals creating myths a myth yeah. to solve all our problems. Yeah. So, but I am really interested in mythic principles. 
Um, and my thinking around that's really influenced by um, Alex Evans and his book, The Myth Gap. Okay. And in that, he writes about the three kind of principles we need for the stories that will take us to a better future. And they are um, a longer now. So stories mm. that give us a longer time frame for our lives. That's huge. Yeah. That's well, huge on its own. And, and we're going to, like, that's <laughs> what I'm working yeah, on now. Right. Um, but so it's a longer now, a bigger us. So a, a larger sense of community um, and a different version of the good life. Mm. And, and so when I read that, I was really struck by this idea of a longer now. And I began to think about how could we support people to have a much longer perspective on their human existence. And I quickly teamed up on this project with someone who has an awful lot of cultural experience. Um, Beatrice Pembroke, she used to be a director of creative economy at the British Council. So she brings a lot of understanding about how the cultural sector worked. And we had a very small grant to do this work. And so we decided that we wanted to inspire the people who commission culture, who have budgets to spend on culture, whether they're in you know, museums, galleries, broadcasters, brands, um, you know, from very different places. But it, we want to inspire them to spend that money on content that gives people a longer perspective on their lives. Um, and, and to you know, so that come, you know, 2020 and moving onwards, we we feel differently about our place on this planet. And and so that's what the project is. Um, and we realized that part of that was helping people understand the different ways that you can have a longer perspective. So we've identified five pathways to the long term. Um, so one is deep time. So that's work that, you know, connects us to the f over 4.5 billion yeah. years, the history of this planet. That's Stefan Harding. I did exactly. his deep time walk years back at Schumacher. It's that kind of thing. Exactly. Isn't it? And now you, there's you a deep realize, time. Oh my God, we're, we're the last few seconds of <laughs> four and a half billion years, whatever it is. <laughs> right. And so, so, so there's, and so, yeah, there's some great creative work, it's like the Deep stuff, Time yeah. app yeah, that's, that's right, being yeah. created off the yeah. back of that. And then, you know, Global Generation are that's doing right, amazing Jane. deep time work at schools. And so, you know, so we're kind of showcasing people like amazing. that who are doing great work and trying to encourage more work in that space. So one is Deep Time. One is um, intergenerational emotion. So how do we care about lives that have yet to come mm, wow. how do we really feel how do we care for future generations so there's loads of work about seven generation work from the native americans and right yeah. exactly all that seven generation yeah. stuff so 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 that side of the work and is about creating so tools and processes to enable people to do that um the third is about legacy so that whole legacy mindset so enabling people to really think about what they're leaving the fourth um, is about mortality awareness. So we had a hunch that part of our inability to take responsibility for the future mm. is is our inability to deal with our deaths. Yeah, right. Um, and so we've been working with death doulas and you know and doing this work around death. And then the p final part is really about um, interconnectedness. So work that uh, shows the way that we are part of this web of life. Um, and, and how's that? How's uh, it sounds absolutely brilliant? How's the gr the groups that you've been bringing into this, from you know broadcasters to media, how have they responded to this? I mean, it's been 
amazing. So, so the reason that we did this was that I did this with a grant that was about engaging the creative industries around the environment. And I've, it's something I've done quite a lot yeah. of and I wanted to do something different for this time. And like, and so, and I've been working in this space for years and using time instead of the environment to get people to take responsibility for the future, it just is sticking a lot yeah, more. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and so, for example, BBC Futures, who are one of the participants, are now commissioning a year-long, um, you know, a, li- a year-long commissioning strand on this theme um, next year. Amazing. Uh, you know, I mean, there's low like lots of different participants are are, do, are going to be doing different work in this yeah. space. I mean, we've literally only just we only just had the big event in October, so it's all Amazing. very new. Um, and we're really wanting to kind of grow this work. Like for me, um, this feels like some of my life's work. Uh, but what we're seeing is, yeah, real enthusiasm for yeah. the theme. And I think... But it's so, it's so I mean, on so many levels, because even if you just think just from today of how we operate, like, you know, everything is about speed, is about impact, it's about, you know, the way we structure, you know, cycles and time and the way we we're rewarded through work the way we think about our success it's like you know i have to achieve this i have to see it this whole idea even like even just that on its own of like looking at the way that we work or the way we function in the world to sort of think about actually we might not what would it be like to not see our impacts of our work or do you know what I mean? right exactly <laughs> and that you know that's all that cathedral thinking it's like you know yeah right it, okay it, yeah and the stuff that you might not actually ever see but right yeah. right and and I think as our world gets more chaotic, mm. we become more myopic. Just, you know, at the moment, like, like we don't even know what's going to happen to this country in like a month's yeah, time. Right. Like, let alone 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 200 years. And so for me, this inquiry is like, this world is, is not going to get less chaotic. It is not going to get less complex. Like, this is, this is it. This is the world we're in. So how do we as a species develop the means to be wise to develop mm. longer perspectives in a world that is just going to get crazier mm. wow it matters um and you you know you know um, matt mccartney's children's firework but it makes me think again i've always been just that little idea of of making decisions you know you know just making decisions with the children in mind and how even that as an idea if you you imagine in boardrooms like you know, making decisions and actually before the decision is made, it's like, what's the impact of this decision going to be on the next generation? Even just that shift. <laughs> right, and that, you know, one of our participants, like, is senior at a very big advertising agency yeah. and that's the work he's doing in his agency. Right. He's literally trying to get them to have a children's fire wow. where every year they think about what's one thing they want to put on that fire because it is um, damaging future generations. Mm. It is damaging the children. So, yeah, so some people are really very much taking some of these processes that come from different indigenous cultures and applying them in new spaces Um, and I think it's worth saying like you know there is so much we can learn from indigenous cultures in this space because they have been doing this for thousands of years you know they are much more successful cultures than we are in terms of their longevity because they've developed like stories and rituals that enable them to live in harmony with their natural world Mm. and I think now you know there's we really need to be looking to them to understand you know to understand how we can start to do more of that in a way that will be different you know Mm. it's not cultural appropriation um but it's very much how can we be inspired by by their wisdom Mm. 
Wow, well, I wish you luck with that. I mean, that's <clears throat> that sounds yeah, like you say, there's a there's a life's work there in in that. But I think that's so interesting again how that just that going in through the window of time, how different energy you've had from that approach. You know, from we go back to the where we start from this idea of how do you change systems, but well, and I think it's partly <coughs> comes back to something you said, Dan, about your relationship to a system. So mm. I think because of the kind of stories we have about the natural world and the environment, which are ones we have to change, but people often feel other to it. It feels like, yeah, it doesn't feel, it's not human, it feels distant. Um, and so people can have trouble empathizing or caring or understanding how to intervene. And I think that's a bad thing. And you know, I think we need to change that. Mm. But that is the way things are for a lot of people at the moment. And so using time as the entry point to start to change that story. Mm. You know, ultimately, I would love us to be living by a story whereby we do not feel distance from the natural world. Yeah, where right. we understand like we are it. Yeah. Um, but but time enables us all to relate to the future. Yeah. And because it because it is because it is universal, yeah. and I think it is so existentially meaningful to individuals because when people you know even in the few events that we've done around this, people are having very deep experiences that relate to their lives and and their children's lives mm. that that and it's those kind of experiences that really get people to to change. Yeah, it's it's always. Um, been bugging around and thinking, you know, even again, go back to the business world, but you know, imagine if we just got rid of quarters and we just went for seasons, you know, and we just talked of seasons. Yeah. <laughs> how that might change how the pace at which we work at, the the products we, we want to release when, or you know what I mean? The, 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 expectation, the expectation within an organization to sort of constantly, you know, as we look out, I mean, you know, we're, I'm looking out your window here and it's like, you know, it's autumn into winter and you can see that, you know, you can see we're about to hit that period of kind of introspection, reflection, the leaves are gone, there's a slowing down, you know, there's a thing happening out in the in this world that supports us and supports the business world that we could be learning so much from. Do you know what I mean? Just honouring that way of thinking of time, you know. Yeah, and, um, and I remember, like, oh, Dan, I remember you, like, you talking about this ages ago like I don't know six years ago mm. and I was so inspired by the way that you were mm. trying to lead your life mm. in that way and your organizations mm. in that way like how as an organization how can yeah. you be more seasonal yeah. and so and I think you were really ahead of your time with that because at the moment um so there's loads of really interesting work happening in terms of feminist um business models mm. and like feminine leadership yeah, right. and looking at how that is much more cyclical mm, and so I'm seeing right a lot more thinking now that is about the cyclical nature of time yeah. respecting natural rhythms yeah, and trying to time and all this yeah, area and, and understanding how can we integrate that into our business practices yeah but you know you guys were doing that so ages ago so you're super ahead <laughs> of the game Try, trying to you know, but but no but it, but it's just interesting isn't it when you start to think of these things and actually i'm starting to think about how you know how you how you've been sharing this story of the system work and actually you can start to see how these are stories and they are frames and ways of thinking about what we do and how we show up and how we think about the world and that helps us shift our hopefully shift our our, our ways into something more i don't know more regenerative i guess more yeah. uh, but um i'm conscious of time um and there's obviously loads of other stuff i'd love to talk about but maybe we can do we can do, we can do, i mean two things first of all like where can people 
follow what you're up to, get involved, or what's what's on the horizon as well, and, and where can people sort of find out more about it? Yeah, so um, the long time project, um, check out Medium for that. Um, and the so I run something called the Comms Lab, which I co-founded. So check out the Comms Lab. Um, the Point People, you know, find them in all the normal <laughs> places. Um, I'm on Twitter at Salt Sea. Um, and in terms of the future, like I'm, I'm really wanting to grow this long time work. I think you know, is we began the conversation talking about being plural, and I think um, so. I think there's we are we are differently plural at different stages in our lives and i've had a very intense period of being very plural mm. and i'm actually really now feeling that i want to channel a lot of that in a more focused way right now mm. and so yeah i'm the, the time work is really the stuff that i'm going to be focusing on but then also really looking at this work around story and culture and and how we work with that more intelligently so i think they're the two kind of animating themes um but i'm always going to be like writing plays and <laughs> films and stuff because yeah, that's a whole other thing that's a whole yeah. other thing oh yeah yeah well, well maybe we'll have to do another one at some point about all of that work but, yeah um, yeah but um amazing thank you so much one last thing i just I, there's a question i'm asking that so there's the idea of the you know the spaceship earth as we know is you know we're, we're on this uh we're on this kind of life-giving rock hurtling through the universe which is quite mad isn't it it's like that in itself should be maybe we should talk that about that a bit more um but um and um you know, this planet exists because it has an operating system which can regenerate itself and it can function if everyone knows the rules and respects those laws, we're kind of there. And so this idea of sort of deep human cooperation and respecting the operating system keeps a healthy kind of spaceship flying. And so, you know, there's that, that the phrase that came from that work, which was, um, you know, there's no passengers on Spaceship Earth, we're, we're all crew. And so I was just wondering, like, with you know, where you're at right now, like, where, where do you see, if you could... Um, if you could sort of encourage people, like where where are more crew needed in the world? Where would you where would you encourage crew to sort of go right now, or for people to step up? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, I I love that quote, and for me, so I've got a magnet on my fridge, um, which is uh, which says, you know, I want everyone to realise their power. So for me, I think part of this time is all of us realising that we have agency. Mm. Um, we have so much more power than we know, and so. So my first instinct is to say to people, just whatever the thing is you think maybe possibly perhaps could be a good idea to do, do that. Like you do not have to be certain. You don't have to know. Like, trust me, you will feel doubt and uncertainty through a lot of this. Like um, I've been doing quite a lot of thinking and talking about courage this year. Mm. And for me, the key realization has been that courage isn't a feeling, it's an action. What courage feels like for me is like nausea and doubt and uncertainty. But then I do, then I act. And the action is the courage. So like, don't wait to feel courageous to act. Nice. Just act in the face of all of the weird <laughs> negative emotions that you will probably have around acting. So like, yeah, my first answer is, I think most people listening will already have something that they care about and have some idea of just what the first step is. That's all you need to know. You don't have to have a massive vision. You don't need to be an expert. You just need to like take the first step and then the next step. Like so much of this work is literally like feeling in the blind, mm. like feeling in the dark, walking down new pathways where you have no idea where they're going. So, 
so and then where are people needed right now I mean you know it's we need to take action around around climate and biodiversity mm. um when we're talking about the environment mm. and you know and around inequality and poverty and attitudes towards migration like they're they're the things that i'm really focused yeah, on yeah, yeah. and then you know and then of course the um, big overarching one for me is feminism mm. um and so you know like uh, but but i don't want to in some ways I think it's less effective to tell people where to take action because I think we're all needed to take very different kinds of action on very different kinds of issues. Right, right. So it's more getting people to really reflect on what they care about yeah. and what's and what's meaningful for them and then yeah and then doing it in the face of all of the panic and doubt. And I love that the courage thing because for me I I also believe that you know that's that's the heart work, right? You know, that's the that's the core and but that's a lovely thing that is 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 tend to like listen go where your heart wants to go right often yeah. is 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 a is thing and it's a sort of it's a sort of under underutilized organ of perception in our <laughs> heady world <laughs> yeah and and also understanding that courage doesn't f necessarily feel good yeah right like we have this idea of it being like i don't know a fist in the air yeah 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 and like if you speak to anyone who has done courageous things there is it's so scary yeah, right. and unsure. Yeah. And and I think the more we can understand that, the more we can like do things, even though we feel yeah, right. weird and it feels really <laughs> difficult. Because if, uh, you know, the thing we haven't really talked about is the emotional side of this work, yeah. which is like, it's tough yeah. a lot of the time. Um, and I think learning how to hold the really difficult emotions that come mm. when you do take a stand and you do take risks is, is really important. So for any listener who <laughs> is like feeling feeling weird or <laughs> unsure or doubtful, like that comes right. with the territory. It's That's no, all of us. It's no, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's no reason not to do anything. Yeah. I think life is about how do you act in the face of those yeah. feelings. Amazing. Ella, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been great to catch up and wish you like, like loads of great vibes for all this work and uh, see where it all where, where it all goes. But really excited to to see see where this stuff pans out, particularly the the long time project. I think that's just so awesome. So thank you so much. Oh, Dan. Well, thank you, and thank you for doing this. <laughs> like, right. I think it's really important to to hear from more people yeah, about right. what they're doing. So, like, yeah. you are providing such a service. Good, good. Well, that's that's thank what you. I'm here for. Cool. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ella. Ciao. So that was Ella Saltmarsh. I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation we had. It was fun to um, explore some of those things with Ella. Her work, as you can see, is sort of prolific and um, really diverse. So do check it out. I'll chuck a bunch of links in the show notes. Um, yeah, and uh, a nice little thought on um, boosting our courage to go out in the world and um, have a go at the things that... Uh, we feel passionate or curious about so uh hope you enjoyed that um as ever any questions thoughts ideas um rants you know send us a note or um give us a dm on instagram or on twitter or um you know send us some signal from afar from across the internet some sort of raging emoji if it's sort of boring you or something um and um yes um Always good to get the feedback. And if you enjoyed it, please do share the show or share the podcast with others you think might enjoy um, listening in. And remember, folks, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth. We're all crew. Until next time, peace and out.